Learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. We are in 1 John. We finished yesterday, 1 John chapter 1. We had a lengthy discussion about what it means to have your sins forgiven in the gospel. Today, we're, I don't know if we'll get past these two verses in John because there's so much here to unpack, but we'll try. So let's just go ahead and read it. This is 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it's not a whole lot of words, but my goodness, there's a lot here. So let's just get into it. First of all, my dear children, this in John, he does this a lot. He calls people that he's writing to or that he loves, he calls them technon, which is little children. And I find that interesting that the youngest disciple of Jesus, maybe Jesus called him technon, little child, I don't know. He probably called him the one that I love, the beloved, but when John writes to people, he calls them this very strong term of endearment, my dear children. So obviously John is older, he's wiser, he is the one that has spent time with Jesus when Jesus was on earth, and he's the one that saw the church grow, and he grew with it. He went out and helped the church grow with Peter. He saw the church do incredible things, but now he's older and wiser, and he's writing letters to people, to Christians, and he, he's just this, this man who's lived an incredible life. And when he's writing, he it's not, not you sinner, it's it's my my little children, my dear children, as it's translated here. But the word is technon. Just a just a kind of a term of endearment from John, and he says, "I write this." So he's telling us why he's writing this epistle. He's writing it to you so you do not sin. <laughs> Thanks, John. I won't sin. I'll just I'll just. Not sin anymore. That's such a great... I don't know why I didn't think of that. Um, what is to sin? The Greek word there is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. It's an archery turn, it, it, term. It means when you pull the bow and arrow and the arrow flies and it misses the mark, that's the term hamartia, which means sin, which means we've missed the mark. And so what he's saying here is never miss the mark. Well, of course you're going to miss the mark, right? You... <laughs> Everyone misses the mark. He just said last chapter, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will cleanse our sin and forgive us from all unrighteousness. So we know that we all sin. So it's this, it's this, this pressure that we live in this world to not sin, to, to know that we shouldn't sin, but that we do sin. Now, what are sins? Obviously, it's missing the mark. I think we have this notion in modern Western culture that sinning is all the things that displeases God. And sin does displease God. There's no question about it. But it's not a displeasure out of some random... Like, God didn't wake up one day and say, well, here are my rules, and if you break these rules then I'm going to punish you. God created us in his image. 
He knows us better than we know ourselves, just like we know our children better than they know themselves. Why do we put rules in front of our children? It's because we love them. We want them to grow into the people that God wants them to be. We love them. We care for them. We know that while they don't like these rules, we know these rules are good for them. That if they can simply follow the rules that we put out for them, which they're not going to follow because they're children, but if, if they could, that they will live a more blessed, a more healthy, a happier life. And that's what we want for our children. That's the reason why God put down the rules for us. It's not that he hates us or he's angry with us or he's this mean guy sitting on the throne in heaven just pointing his finger and saying, you broke that rule, you broke that rule, broke it. No, every time we break a rule, it breaks heart. It breaks God's heart because he sees the big picture and he knows that the way we are created is he gave us rules that he'd like us to follow, not because he's angry with us, but because when we follow those, we are it helps fulfill the way that we are created. We live a richer and a deeper and a more meaningful life. So we have the rules of the Ten Commandments that came down to Moses on Mount Sinai. Throughout the Old Testament, that was that was widened to a whole lot more rules so that people wouldn't break the Ten Commandments rules. And then there were so many rules that Jesus said, listen, I'll just tell it to you. There's two rules. This is it. Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two rules. And, and you think to yourself, well, that's not too hard. Of course, that is the hard part, right? But, but if we can love God and love our neighbor, then we are living the life that God has for us. Why love God? Because God created us and he wants us to recognize in humility that there's something greater than ourselves, that it's not all about ourselves. It's about this higher purpose Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Life, and it was a bestseller because people crave to know that there's a purpose to all of this living and all this suffering and everything, that God has a purpose for this world. God has a purpose for the church. God has a purpose for you. And knowing that, loving God, knowing that he exists, that he created the universe, that he should be worshiped because he created the universe, that he's bigger than you, is, is, is central to how we can live a happy, a joyous, happy life that God created for us. Then the other one is loving your neighbor. This one, of course, seems crazy because if we're inward focused, if really we we look at ourselves, then, then we don't love our neighbor. But, but God, th this is so interesting. God created us to love and he created us to love our neighbor. And so we are deeply fulfilled when it's not about ourselves, but when it's about other people. And this is a hard thing for people that don't understand this, for people that don't live like this. And of course, the, the quintessential example in my life is, is uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He's this guy with all the influence and the power, and he's self-isolated, living in his house, counting all the, all the things that he has, all the possessions that he has, right? and not interacting with the world around him. And he's a mean, sad, horrible man. And then, of course, Christmas comes and he realizes that there's more to life than just satisfying our own desires. And he finds that joy. And that joy 
can be anyone's joy, but they have to understand that we are created to give. We're created to love. We're created to serve. We are not completely at our fullest until we love other people. And you do not have to have a lot of power, influence, uh, wealth, uh, standing in the community or whatever in order to love other people. Paul was in a prison waiting to be executed and he loved the other prisoners. He loved the churches that he had planted and he wrote letters to them. He loved the jailers. Uh, He loved anybody that came into his life. I was talking about the Kairos prison ministry yesterday to a friend. And that is basically where a group of guys go into a prison and they have this three-day weekend where they bring the love of Jesus. And then you create a church in the prison. and And then we teach them to pray for each other and care for each other. And Some of these guys in prison, when they give their testimony, because they always give their testimony, some of them, at some point, they say, when I, when, before I came into prison, it was all about me and what I could do for me in this world. And now that I'm in prison, I understand that life is bigger than me and it's about serving and loving others. And when I was outside of prison, even though I was outside of prison, I was bonded and shackled to that concept. But now that I'm in prison, even though I'm in prison, I'm free. I'm free to love. I'm free to be the person that God created me to be. And I'm, I'm free to have joy. I'm free to have peace. I'm free to have all the things that God has for me. Even though I'm gonna, I may spend the rest of my life in prison, I'm, I'm a free man. Uh, and Paul felt that way too. And so this is why John says, don't sin. It's not because he doesn't want God to be angry at you or he doesn't want it to be a reflection on the church or any of these things. He says, don't sin because it's just not healthy for you. It's not how you were created. So don't sin. But then he says, but if you do sin, last chapter he said, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate. This uh, this word is sometimes trans. It's the parakleton. Parakletos is the is the nominative form of it. Parakletos, parakleton would be the genitive or the yeah the genitive form of it. It's um. It is the uh, parakletos. The 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 parakleton. Sometimes it's tra- translated in some versions of scripture coming from the Greek parakletos. It's a paraclete. It's an advocate. It's a, it's a, it's a person who, parakaleo. It's 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 someone who walks beside you and speaks out. It's actually a it's a a term from the Roman governmental system. If you're put on trial, you were allowed to have somebody that came and walked along you beside you in the trial. They didn't really have. I guess you could say it's like a lawyer. But it's it's more than a lawyer. It's somebody that walks beside you and might even have some gravitas in and of themselves that people are going to listen to them because they're respected in the community. And this person comes and walks along beside you and uses some of that respect and uses some of that gravitas to be there and stand for you while you're before the court. We have today, man, we've seen this a lot, amicus curiae, right? 
It's somebody who writes a letter to the court or the Supreme Court saying, here are my qualifications and here's why I believe you should do whatever. So uh, uh, amic amicus curiae is also like an advocate or this paracleton. And so if you sin and you go before the judge, you have this advocate that is with you there before the judge. And that advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So not only do you have an advocate with a lot of gravitas, you have an advocate with unlimited gravitas. You have an advocate with unlimited power. You have an advocate who will speak on your behalf and the court will listen. He is so powerful and righteous and wonderful that the court will listen to him because what he says, the court obeys. He's like this perfect amicus, amicus curiae that comes in and his argument is so strong and so solid and he has so much wisdom and depth and, and um, pull with the court that the court will have no choice but to spring you from this trap of sin. You have that advocate. Now, it's interesting, the, uh, the paraclete, it's also used, he, he uses this also in his Gospel of John very many times. In the Gospel of John, he says that the paraclete we have, after I leave, Jesus says, after I leave, another will come, the paraclete who will be there as your advocate, and that will be the Holy Spirit. So in John, the Gospel of John, the advocate is the Holy Spirit. Here in 1 John, the advocate is Jesus Christ himself. And that's curious, but Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father are all one. So it's really not a theological problem here. I think it's helpful for John here to talk about this advocate as the spirit of Jesus that's with you, which is what the Holy Spirit is. It's the spirit of Jesus. So it's all kind of ties in together. We have this spirit, the advocate, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the perfectly righteous one, who is standing there arguing your case before the judge. All right. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The atoning sacrifice, the Greek word is helasterion. He's the, he is the in, the, in the Greek culture, when you wanted to please the gods, you brought forth to the temple an offering, a gift, a sacrifice that you laid on the mercy seat and and you put the sacrifice there and you burned it or you offered it or you sacrificed it or whatever. And the, the, the smoke of the flame went out of the blood dripped down and the gods were pleased. The gods smiled upon that. The gods laughed at that sacrifice. They were now happy. So this is all Greek culture words, the hilasterion. So the, he is the hilasterion for our sins. In other words, Jesus is the one that sacrificed and the God is happy. God is happy because of the sacrifice. There's so much here. Um, actually, the word uh, hilarious, I believe, comes from hilasterion. That, that we're laughing, that the gods are laughing hilasteria because of the sacrifice. They're happy, they're pleased because of the sacrifice. And Jesus is that sacrifice that atones for our sins. And... We see that he 
his sacrifice on the cross, the death, the resurrection, we no longer have to be under that punishment because the final punishment was paid by Jesus Christ. Great, great, great theology here that that Jesus is the sacrifice for the sins, but he is the atoning, atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this has caused a great amount of debate throughout the church's history as to who Jesus was sacrificed for. Now, the way I read this is that Jesus was the sacrifice for all sins of the whole world, which means that Jesus, his sacrifice, not only was sacrificed for my sins, but your sins, Peter, since when, when Luther looked at this passage, he said, John wrote this so that everybody would understand that it wasn't just John and Peter that the sacrifice was for, but for all people, that it includes me too. But the whole world is more than just the Christians of this world, is it not? And John says this in John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Of course, in John 3, 16, he goes on, he says that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. So even though the sacrifice and the atonement was for the sins of everybody in the world, not everybody in the world understands the sacrifice. Now, this has caused debate in the church for thousands of years because the question is did Jesus die was his sacrifice for everybody was it for the elect and how do you is it everybody it's it's some of the sins for everybody all the sins for some people or all the sins for everyone I mean that's basically what it is well it can't be some of the sins for everybody right because if we still have sins that haven't been redeemed, then, then that doesn't work. So it can't be some of the sins for everybody. So is it all the sins for some of the people? And there are a lot of, this is the Calvinist theology, that, that Christ died for the elect and only the elect are coming into heaven. And it's, uh, it's the, um, right, it's limited atonement. That's the L of TULIP, which is the Calvinistic acronym. But Jesus only died for the elect and only the elect to get into heaven. And it's the elect, the elect, the elect. Now, Luther predated Calvin and he never really talked in terms of the elect and not, not elect. But the things that Luther talks about is more of a broad based Jesus died for everybody, the sins of the whole world. But by faith, you have to claim that election. And so Jesus died for everybody, but you're only saved if you claim that election in your life. So it's it's not double predestination, which Calvinists would say, you're either predestined to hell or you're predestined to heaven. Luther would say, God wants everybody to be predestined to heaven. And if you're not predestined to heaven, it's because of something that you did that it's not God, because God wants everybody to be in heaven. It has, it's all rests on you, which... 
I mean, semantically, I'm not sure there's a huge difference there, to tell you the truth. I love, at some level, I love the thought that Jesus died for everybody. And the role of the church is to just let people know that. Jesus died for you. And when people cling to that, then they have life everlasting. And it's not a life... We always think in terms of eternal life as starting at the moment of death. But eternal life starts at the moment that you come into the kingdom. And this life with Jesus and this life with God doesn't start in the grave. It starts right now or at the moment you're in the kingdom. And that is powerful also because as you're you're interacting with people, think of it this way. The kingdom is this castle, and the castle is guarded by two guards. And the people who've been baptized go up to the door and they say, I'm a member of this kingdom because God loves me. And I know that he loves me because he's told me he loves me, so let me in. So they let you in. The the people who don't approach the gate are those who say, God could never love me. God could never care for me. I'm not even going to go up to the gate and talk to the guards. The sad truth is, is that Jesus died for the sins of everybody. So everybody is able to go up to that gate and say, let me in. But if you don't know that, or if you don't believe that, you'll never walk up to the gate and ask, let me in. Because why would you? You're living in fear of God. There's no proof. There's nothing that shows that you're that he should let you in. And these are, I mean, these are, you could spend, <laughs> I could spend a long time looking at Calvinism and Arminianism and Lutheran theology and how other people throughout the last 500 years have looked at salvation and the elect and who's the elect. Actually, in the 1800s, this idea of who the elect was was such a strong argument. They had such a strong debate over this in the 1800s that almost ripped the, char- the church apart because there were those that were convinced in Arminianism and those that been convinced in Calvinism and they were arguing and speaking past each other and it just almost ripped the whole entire Christian church apart. And Jesus doesn't want the church to be ripped apart. He likes us to debate this stuff. There's no question about that. But at some level, a lot of this stuff is, Lord, I don't understand it. So I'm just going to live my life the way you told me to live it, which is when we encounter anybody, we need to let them know that Jesus died for their sins. I mean, and we do that. I think we do that as Christians very, very well. And of course, as we talked about yesterday, we also should tell people that that God's power is with you. You may not realize, you may not call upon it, but his power is with you. And his honor is with you. You you are not some piece of dirt. Well, actually, we are a piece of dirt. But I mean, you are not some scum that, that God doesn't love. No, you have the elevated position of being a child of the king. We should tell people all these things. And as far as who's going to be saved at the, you know, at the last day, that's, that's, there's lots of stuff in scripture that says it's Jesus that does it and that God does the judging and we shouldn't do the judging. So we really, we can't do the judge. We can't be the judge at the last day. I'll I'll leave with this story. I was talking recently about, to with somebody who was very concerned because they believed that the last election was stolen 
I'm not going to get into that. If it was, then the person or people that did that, while they may get away with it in this life, they do not get away with it in a in in eternity. There is there's always a punishment for sin. And and, and that's just one example because because you know, there are injustices that happen in this world. The people believe that injustice and there's no there's no repayment for that injustice of this world. And um, there actually is a repayment for all the injustices of the world. And that is Jesus Christ. Because how many times have we done something that have been horrible or shameful or, you know, changed the course of, of our little world or whatever? And and we're, we're no better than anybody else. And yet Jesus comes and redeems us. He's our advocate in front of the Father. He's the righteous one. And we need to share that love and that joy and that peace and that cleansing of sin with everybody. Whether or not they grab a hold of it or not, we need to let them know. That's our calling. That we've been, that we've been all, all, the sins of the whole world have been atoned for by this perfect sacrifice who came and sacrificed himself for the world. So I think we'll leave it there. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world as a perfect sacrifice so that we would not be separated from you. In his name we pray. Amen.